We're going to be looking this morning at Acts chapter 9. If you've been with us all year long, we've been going through the book of Acts called Life is Mission. And Tom has been developing this idea of what does life mean, what does mission mean, and particularly what does that mean for us. Last week, we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch. We talked about this story of this man who comes all the way from Ethiopia. He's an outcast, he's a foreigner, and he comes to worship in the temple. And he's barred from the temple. And he returns home despondent. And he's reading the book of Isaiah, and God sends Philip. Philip comes and he meets him. He gets on the chariot with him. They have a conversation. They begin talking. And Philip leads this Ethiopian union to Christ, and he heads home rejoicing. It's a really exciting story. And then we get to Acts chapter 9, and it doesn't start out so exciting. We have the, the figure Saul comes onto the scene. We've seen him before. You may not have noticed. Maybe you did. In the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he's stoned to death. And there's this man named Saul in the story who's there. He's standing there holding the coats of the men that are throwing the stones. And it says that he approved of Stephen's execution. So Saul's been around. Saul is a man who hates Christianity and is trying to destroy it. Before we get started, though, I think this story kind of challenges some of our natural presuppositions that we hold. And that's this. We like to think or often think, including myself, that some people are just too far gone for the gospel. Or maybe some people are just too evil or not deserving or a waste of our time, nor do we want to give it. And as I said that, I think most of us, as we're sitting here, are saying, no, 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 Carter, come on. That's not true. You know, the gospel is for everyone, Ethiopian eunuch, Orthodox Jew, rich, poor, morally upright, criminal. It's for everyone. Jesus died for everybody. Don't you know that? No one's too evil. No one's too far gone. Everyone is deserving on some level, even though our sin makes us undeserving. And no one's not worth our time. We say that because we're here, right, in church. That's what we're supposed to say. It's like in Sunday school when you say, you ask a question and the answer is always Jesus. We give the answer, no, 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 that's not true. Gospel's for everyone. But I want to push that a little bit. Because I think we say that, but do we actually live that out in reality? So I want to ask you a few hard questions. You don't have to answer out loud. Um, but think about it. If I were to tell you, that just before his death, Osama bin Laden became a Christian, would you rejoice? Or what if I told you before his death that you had the opportunity, there was a meeting we had set up, opportunity for you to go before Osama bin Laden and preach the gospel to him. Would you take the opportunity and would you pray and hope that he believes? Or what about other government officials? Even our president, do you pray and hope that he believes and trusts in Jesus and sees life as mission? Or do you assume that he doesn't? And do you declare that he doesn't because you don't want to associate with him? Or do you just not really care? Or what about other people maybe that have abused you or exploited you or wronged you in some type of way? Or coworkers, a boss, a family member, maybe somebody of different sexual orientation or a different culture, a different country, maybe even different religious group? Do we actually live in reality, the, the, the church answer that we give, which is everyone, regardless of what they've done or what they've said, they deserve the gospel and we should be desiring to give it to them. Because I think if you're all honest, like myself, 
that's kind of hard to swallow. There's some people that we don't want to think that they could still receive the grace of God and eternal life with God because of all the things that they've done or said to us or others. So the, the, the prayer this morning is that as we read Acts chapter 9, is that God would break our heart of that. He would convict us. That he would, one, first remind us that we ourselves are not deserving and we ourselves are so blessed and privileged to be given the grace of God to be here this morning and to know Jesus. But that also God has given us a mission. And that mission is to take the gospel by telling people and loving them and showing them Christ. And everyone is deserving, regardless of what they've done or who they are. So let's pray before we look at Acts chapter 9. Lord, we simply pray this morning that you would make us open to your word. Lord, that we would hear your voice. We would hear what you are teaching us through this story of Paul's conversion. We pray that you would challenge us and that you would show us the people that you are calling us to, the mission that you have laid out before us, and that we would be a church and a people that love and are desiring to invite everyone to join alongside. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to pick up in verse 1, Acts chapter 9. I have to do this. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. See, Tom Hendricks is also trying to get me to like acronyms and kind of cheesy slogans, and he's that, and that was kind of fun, actually. So We're going to pick up in verse 1. Here's what it says. This is right after the Ethiopian eunuch. Exciting story, rejoicing, everyone's happy. And then it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So immediately after this exciting, happy story, Ethiopian eunuch, we have Saul, but Saul, still breathing murder and threats against any person, man, woman, or child who claims Christ. Still breathing murder and threats. What Luke is trying to get us to understand is that Saul is not a good guy. He's a guy that has one mission, one focus, one vision for life. Destroy every person who claims Christ. Doesn't matter how old they are. Doesn't matter whether they're male or female. Destroy them. Murder them. Threaten them. Humiliate them. Bind them. Imprison them. Destroy their family. Essentially, Paul is a bringer of death. He brings death. He leaves death where he goes. That's who he is. And now Paul has or Saul, rather, has a vision, a mission. He's going to go to Damascus, and he wants to go to Damascus because he wants to see if there's any Christians there so he can take them and bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem so they can be tried and executed. Now, this is really interesting because Damascus is in Syria. It's a far way away from Jerusalem, especially when there's no planes or cars. And Damascus is, is seemingly a random city. It's, it's removed, it's far away, it's not near Galilee or Jerusalem or the cities surrounding the area where persecution to Christians is really beginning to take place. I mean, the church is mainly in Galilee, surrounding cities, and Judea, where Jerusalem is. And yet, Saul is so focused on destroying the church and murdering, executing, and trying every Christian, man, woman, and child, that he is going to go all the way to Damascus just to see if there's any Christians there. 
And he goes to the high priest, he asks him for letters, which is essentially letters of authority, so that when he gets there, he can go to the synagogues, and he can go to the people there, and he can say, hey, listen, I have authority from the high priest to take anyone in this in this city and surrounding area that, that claims Christ. I can take them, I can bind them, I'm bringing them back. And so he goes. This is a man who wants to wipe out a people. We have had people like that in the history of the world, right? We don't hold them in high regard. This is who Saul was. He was more than just a bad dude. And so we go on, and here's what it says in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, Lord, which means master, who, who is this powerful, mighty person in front of me? Who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Saul's approaching Damascus. He's with some men, and they're going to go in there, and they're going to find every Christian. They're going to bind them up, and they're going to take them. And right before he gets there, he's on the road, and this light shines around him. He falls to the ground, and he sees a figure. We know he sees a figure because he asks the question, who are you? He sees someone. And the travelers with him saw the light. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. So this is an observable event. It's not some hallucination. It's not some vision that only Paul had. It's something that actually happens. And there's this figure standing before Saul. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's confused and says, "Who? hey, who are you? And the, and the person, the figure standing there says, I'm Jesus. The one that you are persecuting. And it's interesting because Saul, right, is going after the church. He's going after people that claim Christ. And yet here... Jesus tells us that he's persecuting him. And I think this is, is significant for us to understand because it's not in a sense, we celebrated the resurrection last week on Easter. It's not in a sense that Jesus, he lived for about 33 years. He was perfect. He died on the cross, was buried three days later. He rose from the grave. He hung out with the disciples and some other people for a little while. And then he ascended and then he wiped his hands. And just said, hey, followers, Christians, please don't mess it up too bad. Please don't mess the church up too bad. I'm coming back one day. It's going to be good. But just like, let's try to keep it on a good path right now. Because see, Jesus is alive and therefore he's active. He cares for his church. He rescues his church. He prays for his church. He mediates for his church. And when his church and his people are attacked, it's, it's as if you're doing it to him. And so he comes on, he comes to the road to Damascus and he stops Saul in his tracks. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is dumbfounded. He's, he sees the risen Christ and he's struck with blindness. And he finally sees truth. And then he's led, interesting, as he's blind, he's led into Damascus by the hand. He's put in a house and he's there, it says, for three days without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Well, this is, this is interesting if you think about it, because why didn't, why didn't Saul fall down, see the light, talk with Jesus, see the truth, and then as he went into to Damascus, 
he just started preaching right away. Why did he have to wait three days with no vision? Well, I think it's because God was taking Saul through a breaking process, right? He does this with us. The most important thing to Saul and his mission, his vision, his vision to destroy and bind and take all Christians, men, women, and child, the most important thing to him was what? His eyes. Because he had to see them. He had to find them. He had to capture them. Now, if he heard them speaking and he heard them proclaiming Christ, but he was blind, he could, you know, kind of stumble through the market, but he was never going to be able to find them, right? He needs his eyes in order to fulfill his mission for his life. And God strips him of his eyes for three days and makes him wait in a room, not eating, not drinking, as we're going to see, only praying. And then the story, the story shifts to this man named Ananias. In verse 10, it says this, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. His name means Yahweh is gracious. So there is actually a Christian there, a disciple, Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, which is essentially a straight street. It's called Straight. From the eastern or western gate in Damascus. Essentially, he's saying it's recognizable. You know the street. It's not a little alleyway. It's a main street. Go to this straight street and go to the house of Judas. You've been there before. You had dinner there last night. And look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias will come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So God looks at Ananias and he gives him a call. He gives him a vision. And he says, listen, here's my mission for you, Ananias. There's this guy, his name's Saul. He's from Tarshish. He's in the straight street. You know where that is. He's at the house of Judas. He's there. He's blind right now. And he's praying. And what I want you to do is I want you to go there. And when you go there, I want you to lay hands on him. And I want you to pray for him and restore his sight. Easy enough. And Ananias does exactly what I would do and exactly what you would do. He thinks God's insane. Here's what he says. Ananias says to him in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Essentially, Ananias, you know, has this conversation with God and he goes, God, um, not sure if you know about this. I'm going to let you know. The guy Saul of Tarshish praying blind, he's a bad guy. He's really evil. Do you know, do you, wait, God, do you know what he's done? He's been executing and trying and approving of murder for the saints in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. He's like a really, really bad guy. And not only that, do you know why he's here, God? I'm going to let you know. He's here because the chief priests have given him letters of authority so he can come here and take people like me to prison. So you're telling me, God, you want me to go lay hands on this guy. And right as I say in Jesus' name, amen, and he sees again, and he's going to grab me and bind me and take me to Jerusalem. That's a terrible idea. Like, I'm cool with some of your missions, but this is like not a good one, God. And, you know, God is very gentle. He's very understanding. Verse 15, the Lord says to him, go. 
For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. So God looks at Ananias and he says, I I hear you, but I'm just going to illuminate you, Ananias. You don't know anything. This guy, Saul, he is a chosen instrument of mine. I have a mission and a vision for him. And he is going to be going to share the gospel with the entire world. The Gentile, the foreigner, the outcast, the least of these. He's going there and he's also going to be talking with kings too. Not to mention his own people, the Israelites. And don't worry, Ananias, I know it's been hard for you as a Christian. There's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of persecution. But listen, Paul, who was formerly Saul, he is going to suffer as well. He is going to realize how much you suffer for the name of Christ. And as I was thinking through this passage, it was really providential because the last two weeks, God has been stirring this idea and this image in my head, these thoughts. The last two weeks has been an incredible whirlwind for me and for my family. Uh, Two weeks ago, actually today, my grandfather passed away. An incredible man, amazing man, great personality, loved Jesus, and we have the hope and know that where he is right now. And And it's awesome to know that. And immediately after that, I went with 22 other people to Haiti for five days. So we have these two different things going on. And when we came back, it was Easter. We celebrated the resurrection. And then Monday morning, I get in this chapter and I read about suffering. And as I was reading, it made me think about this question kept popping into my mind. Do I really know what suffering means? And am I willing to actually suffer. Because I know loss, I know pain, I know grief, I know sadness. I've experienced that over the last two weeks. But do I really know suffering? You see, I think many of us in this room have experienced suffering, whether through abuse, divorce, exploitation. There is suffering, and we do endure it. But what I've come to realize, and I think is true, We live in a culture that's terrified of suffering. And so we do everything possible to eliminate it, right? We order our society. We like our insurance policies. We like our fast food. We like our Amazon delivery, especially Amazon Prime. It only takes two days to get whatever you want. We like our schedules, our doctors and dentist appointments. We like our timely travel schedules. Have you, ever, you, you have all been to the airport, at least most of you. If you've been to the airport and the plane is delayed for like 15 minutes, you would think that war just broke out, right? 15 minutes. Are you kidding me? These people are going to fly me 30,000 feet in the air halfway across the world in like a few hours and I'm going to complain about 15 minutes. We like things ordered, carefully crafted, right? To where suffering isn't really the norm. It's a news story or an anomaly or something that happens randomly in our lives. And this isn't real life. (laughs) It's not. You see, in America, we like to maximize. We like to make efficient. We like to eliminate obstacles to take away risk. And these are all good things, okay, in the right arenas. It's built the country that we know and we love, a country of freedom, a country of opportunity, and we all feel blessed to be in this country. 
but it has hurt us, the church. It's hurt us because we are afraid of breaking that. We are afraid of a crack breaking our carefully crafted, ordered society and really experiencing real life. In the last two weeks, I've been reminded of this. Do you realize that us in this room, we are the most physically blessed Christians in the history of the world? The most physically blessed Christians in the history of the world. And yet we are sometimes some of the most spiritually poor, or at least spiritually afraid. You know, we talk about this idea as life is mission and and different series that we've gone through that God calls all of us, every part of us, time, talent, treasure, everything. And yet if you're like me, because of the culture we live in, you justify giving him a little bit. We give him a little crumb every year. Don't worry, God, next year I'm going to give you a whole nother night. All right, God, you know, I know that I know you want me to talk to that person, but I got to prepare for months. And you got to, you got to, you know, bring that person crying to me, asking them me to tell them about Jesus, and then I'll do it. We're terrified, myself included. We don't want to shake the cultural norm. And yet this passage calls us out of that. It calls us to reject passivity. It calls us to reject our fear. It calls us to embrace whatever mission, corporately and individually, that God has called us on and who God has called us to. And Ananias gets this. He hears what God says, and he doesn't continue to question for months, and this is what it says. Ananias, verse 17, departed. And he entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Ananias doesn't go and say, Okay, God. I'm going to do it. And he goes in and he sees Saul there and he's shaking. And so he holds the door open and he puts one finger on his head and he says, see, in Jesus name, amen. And then runs out the door and runs away. Right? Because that's how it would have worked. He would have said, see, and it just happened. He comes in, right? Shuts the door behind him. He sees this man that has murdered his friends, people that he knew and heard about in Jerusalem and surrounding areas, and that was here to take him. He looks at him, he puts his hand on him, and he says, Brother Saul, imagine, imagine doing that. And he prays with him, he restores his sight, and he doesn't leave. He stays for days. He feeds him, he baptizes him, he prays with him, he encourages him. He talks with him. He spends time with this man who was known for how evil he was. They became brothers. Now, as we were spending time in Haiti when we got back, I realized something. And that's that we don't share and serve the way that we should. You know, we talk about an evangelism training, personal evangelism training, a class we've been doing here, that evangelism is more than just telling someone about Jesus, right? It wasn't enough that Ananias just came in and laid hands on him and said, in Jesus' name, amen, and then left. It was important that Ananias stayed there with Paul, fed him, spent time with him, encouraged him, 
You know, Tom's been talking about this idea that evangelism, that sharing the gospel is bringing together mercy and message. That we show Christ, we tell people about Christ through our words and through the way that we act, the way that we treat them, our attitude. When we were in Haiti, one of the things they forced you to do, which is really good, is you go out into the village and you just get to know people. It's like, we don't do that. So we got dropped off and we're walking down this dirt road. It's myself and three others. And we walk up to this mango tree at this little aqueduct, little water, and there's five people sitting there. And we stop and we have a translator. And we begin having a conversation. And in five minutes, there's 30 people. Literally 30 people. And they're all sitting around. We're sitting around this tree for 30 minutes or so, maybe more. And we're laughing. The one guy looks at me and he goes, hey, listen, I'm going to sell you this mango tree. How much do you want it? I'm like, Why would I, how am I going to take that mango tree home? It's like a massive, he's like, don't worry. I'll take care of it. When you come home, I'll give you, when you come back, I'll give you some. It's like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yet he was trying to sell me the tree. We were laughing about how we are not as good of dancers as they are. They're really good dancers and they really, they know how to get down and we don't. So they were making fun of us, of course. And we were laughing, we were talking, we were talking about life, we were talking about struggle, we were talking about Jesus. And before we left, we all sat around, all 30 of us, and we prayed for each other. And we only left, we didn't want to leave, we left because we felt bad because the rest of the team was gardening in the hot sun and we were under a nice mango tree by the water talking with some really awesome people. But as I was walking down the street, we are heading to the field to garden, I was thinking to myself, man, that was awesome. That was so fun. It was natural. Even though we had a translator, which makes conversation a little bit more difficult, it was natural. It was fun. And it was, it was encouraging to me. And I thought, I'd never do that here. Or very, very seldomly. Now, I laugh and I talk with friends and people, but do I really significantly talk with people? When's the last time I've talked with someone about life and struggle and Jesus and prayed with them before our conversation was over. And I realized it's not something that I do that often. Because, you know, we, we live in, in a society where every single one of us, whether or not we want to admit it, we're influenced by individualism. Right? Here's what happens. So this is all of our days on some level. We get up. We make coffee. Maybe you make breakfast if you're ambitious, or if you're like me, you just eat like a little breakfast bar. And then you get in your car, and you drive your car to work, and you pass thousands of people. And when you get to work, you park, and you go in the elevator, and no one ever talks in the elevator, because that's weird. And you hit the button, and you go up. And then maybe as you walk into your office, you give someone a nod, or maybe you say good morning, and you walk into your office, you close the door, and you work. And then when you interact with people, it's because you have a meeting with them or a strategic planning vision meeting or whatever the case may be. It's not about conversation or relationship. It's about get the job done. When the day's over, you get back in the elevator. You probably are with the same people. You don't say hi to them. Most likely you've been riding the elevator for days or escalator. You get back in your car. You pass the same thousand people. You go home. You sit in your house. You make dinner. You watch American Idol and you go to bed. Right? And maybe you vote. That's our life on some level, right? On some level, that's how we live. We have separated homes with gates that are 
fairly large and separate from each other. Very few of us down here use public transportation. We all have cars, so we don't really mingle. And so conversation with strangers or even with the people that we're closest to or we see every day is very seldom and would be, frankly, kind of weird. And so it's a struggle for us to break out of that. And yet on this trip, God convicted me and said, you know what? You go to the same coffee shop multiple times a week. You know the people there. You know the people that you drive and you walk past and that even that you work with. How many times do you have meaningful conversations with them? You know many of them don't believe. Do you invite them? Do you invite them on this mission? Do you ask them how? These thoughts just kept going through my head. And I was reminded of this documentary that I watched a few years ago that like rattled me. It's called God Grew Tired of Us. And it's about these Sudanese refugees who are given asylum in America. And they've never experienced anything that we have. Like they've never seen electricity. And they thought, they, they interviewed them before they left. And they said, we think this electricity thing is going to be really hard to, to work. They didn't know it was like a switch. They thought it was like a machine that you had to figure out. They get on the plane and they're served a meal and they've never eaten food like this before. And so they think the butter you just eat straight. <laughs> so they're eating the butter and they interview them. And they say, we don't like that yellow stuff. It tastes like soap. And they get to America and they try to, to assimilate into this country. And they realize, you know, they're asking questions like, what's Santa Claus? Why does he have to do with Christmas? It doesn't make any sense. And then they interview this one man, this one young man. He's been here for a few months they ask him about the United States, how he's doing. And here's what he says. In the United States, people are not friendly. You can find someone that's walking in the street by himself, you know, and you don't even talk. You cannot go to someone's house you don't know, even though you are all Americans. They call the police and they say, this guy comes to my house. I don't know him. But in Sudan, they can ask you, have you got lost? Are you new to this place? They can ask you that. You can say, yes, I'm new to this place. They can show you where you are. You can even talk with them. It is important that we ask them, how do you, how do people walk in this area? How do you people feel when you ask somebody, now can I show you a way? How do you feel? You know, that's difficult. You cannot even ask them because these are different people. That's really difficult. I don't know. How are we going to be acquainted with this life here? It's a great shame, actually. We have so many questions, but we have few people to answer them. And when I watched that movie, especially when I watched that part, it was like a knife because I knew it was true because it was true of me. That we, we have this carefully crafted reality that we don't want to sever. And so we make excuses, Right? Well, I don't, I don't want to share because I don't want to, I don't want to share the gospel with this person. I don't want to talk with them and engage because that may alter our friendship. They may think I'm weird or not want to be friends with me anymore. Or I may be humiliated. Or maybe it's just, it's not part of our culture. So I'll wait for the opportunity that really presents itself. But I'll tell you, I've had very few opportunities when someone's come up to me crying saying, tell me about Jesus. Not to say it doesn't happen. But God calls us on this mission, just like Ananias, just like Saul, to go out, to live our life in whatever vocation, lifestyle that God has called us to, 
and to share the gospel with everyone we come in contact with, those closest to us and those we pass by daily. And it's serving and sharing and advancing the gospel, living life as mission, is not something that we put into our schedules. It's not something that we, we give God a night a month. It's the life we're called to live. Look at Saul's reaction. After he sees and he's been strengthened and he's spent time with Ananias, here's what it says. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. That's weird, right? This guy was coming to tell the synagogues, I'm going to take all the Christians and I'm going to bind them and take them back. Immediately he gets up, he goes to the synagogues and instead of giving him the letters from the high priest, he says, Jesus is the son of God. Talk about a reversal. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not? Is not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who were lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Many days had passed and the Jews plotted to kill him. So this man that came to kill is now being hunted. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And he heads back to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, the disciples there are wary to talk with him. But then this one disciple comes up and says, no, no, we need to accept this guy. And they do. And then he becomes brothers with those men in Jerusalem. And they try to kill him again. And then they send him out. And he goes to Tarshish for a few years to kind of get away from the havoc. And then verse 31 ends. And here's what Luke says. He stops the action and he says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So, so Luke ends and says, listen, this guy, Saul, that has become Paul and has now been preaching in Damascus. And he actually went to Arabia for a little bit and now in Jerusalem. And the gospel is advancing in Judea and Galilee and Damascus and all over. And the church is set up now, as we're going to see in the rest of Acts, to take over the world. And as Thomas said, to flip the world upside down. And God is doing great things. And he's changing the hearts of men and women through men and women that live life as mission. You see, Paul, this man, this evil, too far gone, not deserving, not worth your time guy, that Ananias obeyed the Lord and healed his sight and now is on a mission for Jesus. This man, Paul, preached the gospel to Nero was imprisoned by him and had an effective ministry in the prison. Nero is the man who blamed the great fire in Rome on the Christians and set out to destroy Christianity. And what he would do, it's very graphic, he would take Christians, he would tie them to tree posts, plant them around his yard and light them on fire to be torches for his parties. And Saul is presented before Nero and instead of telling him how horrible of a human being he is and how he's, he's going to hell and he's evil, he shares the gospel with him and the Roman guards. And actually, most people think that Nero was the guy that eventually executed Paul 
and Peter. I mean, Paul got it, right? Ananias got it. The gospel is for everyone. Regardless of who you are, what you've done, what you look like, where you come from, it's for everyone. And we have been called collectively and individually to give it and to share it and to show it to everyone, especially those who are near. So I want to leave us with these questions. Do we preach the gospel in word and deed? I mean, do we really? Do we exclude people because they are deemed not deserving, too evil, too far gone, and a waste of time? Do we actively seek out opportunities to serve and share? And if not, what are we so afraid of? See, Ephesians 2.10 tells us that, that God has good works set out for you beforehand. But then immediately after that, it says, and you should walk in them. See, Christ has called us to live life as mission, to actively, selflessly, sacrificially embrace the life and the call that God has given us individually and corporately as a church and to give the gospel to everyone that we come in contact with and to not be afraid. We have been called to the same mission, the same vision, and to have the same eyes that Paul did, that Ananias did, the disciples in the first and second century did. The question for us as a church and as a people is, will we obey that? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. And God, we pray that you would convict our hearts. Lord, I know that you've convicted mine. I pray that you would lead us to be people that aren't afraid of suffering, of persecution or humiliation. Lord, but we would be so in love with you that we would desire to live out daily the vision that you have for us. Lord, be our vision. Show us what you have called us to. Teach us what life as mission really looks like. Help us to never judge and to think that some people are too far gone or too evil or not deserving or not worth our time. Break our individualism. Help us to be people that talk, share, and show your great name. Make us a people that are known for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.